Well, welcome to a very special episode of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law. We are so excited to be here in Austin, Texas. Uh, with me are my sisters-in-law, Jill Weinbanks. Kimberly Atkins Store. Joyce Vance. And me, Barb McQuaid. Or, as I've discovered, this, this is the first time we've ever been together, I would henceforth like to be known as the tall one. <laughs> Five foot four. I've never been the tall one in my life, but today I am the tall one. Well, uh, before we get to, we've got some topics that we want to talk about today. We're going to talk about Donald Trump's very bad legal week. That's a crowd pleaser. Uh, we are going to talk about the upcoming Supreme Court term that starts the first Monday in October, which is three days from now. And we're going to talk, since we're on a, in a college town, about um, going to law school and wh whether people should go to law school today. Our thoughts about that. You know, you hear so much stuff about lawyers and our views on, you know, what, what can lawyers do today uh, to make the world a better place. So we thought we'd try to get a little uplift in our conversation. And we are going to take your questions, which really is our favorite part of the show. Our, our listeners and our audience are so informed, and it may really make us think. So we've got some microphones in the room, and so when that time comes, we hope you will go to a microphone and ask us a question. You can direct us to, to any one of us or to all four of us, and we uh, look forward to that portion of the program. I also want to mention that tonight after the show, you know, I don't know if, if you listen to the end, you have to listen to the end of every show because after the music, you know, there's always a little outtake that we call the coda. Has anybody ever listened all the way to the end? Yeah. <laughs> 90% of the time, it's something that happened when, like, Jill's dog started barking or the doorbell <laughs> rang. But um, uh, the CODA, so tonight we're actually having a special CODA show. It's free at the Fallout Comedy Theater, located at 7th and Lavaca, 6 p.m., and you're all invited to join us there. And we're going to uh, read our ads and uh, answer some more questions there. So if your question doesn't get asked, uh, asked or answered today, at this session, we'd love to see you there uh, at the Fallout Comedy Theater. So we look forward to that. All right. Well, uh, without further ado, perhaps we should get into it. Um, I did just want to do a little bit of chit-chat and ask you folks about your travel here. You know, we, um, we, we, we have a little group text that we text from time to time. Um, but we were texting each other and sending, you know, photos. We, we all flat left our respective homes early in the morning. Um, and sent selfies to each other. And so how was your travel getting here to Austin? For me, it was painful because I'm a night owl and I was picked up at 7 a.m. to get to the airport. <laughs> but I've recovered enough that I can be here today and I will last through the coda. We often send, you know, Jill a text at about noon, say, Jill, you up? <laughs> How about you, Kim? How about your travel? Mine was seamless. I did have to leave the house at 4 a.m., but, you know, it was worth it to be here. But I have to say, initially, I had a flight that would have required me to leave at about 7. But, you know, connecting flights have not always been great for flights. And after I and my husband both have, have missed a few, I switched to an earlier flight, which was seamless. But the flight that I was supposed to be on, my husband actually took, and he is not here yet. So, thankfully... <laughs> 
I did switch that flight, so I'm glad I had a seamless flight. Kim is still newly wed. They fly like they're the royals. They can never be on the same flight. <laughs> How about you, Joyce? How was your trip in? You know, I had an easy flight in from Alabama. It's not very far, but I had an exciting moment at the end where Jill and I met in the airport. And we haven't seen each other in person in so long, and I got sort of emotional about it. So that was fun. We ate and then we had barbecue. barbecue. Yes, salt lick, right? I mean, I know that there's barbecue wars here, and I don't know because it's been too long what the best barbecue here is. I know at home in Birmingham, we still have the old classics, but during the pandemic, we actually had some new ones crop up. So I'm hoping to get some of the local barbecue while I'm here. I hope that y'all will come up and suggest your favorites. Let's make it a rule. When you ask a question, you have to tell us your name. And before you ask the question, your favorite barbecue place in yes. Austin, because we, we want suggestions, all right? That sounds, that sounds pretty good. I had a great trip in. I flew in from Detroit today. And um, I had a little time this morning, so I went to the um, Lyndon Johnson uh, Library and loved it, got to go on a tour. I, I have this thing where wherever I travel, I like to go to Major League Baseball stadiums, and tomorrow night I'm going to the Rangers game, very excited about that, um, and Presidential Library. So I had a great morning checking that out. It was, uh, it was terrific. You know, Barb, I know you love talking about toilet paper. What kind are you using these days? <laughs> All right. You know, I like to have a little dignity. I think there are certain topics that are private. Um, but I will talk about paper in general. Um, if a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? Probably, if 27,000 trees fall in a forest, would you rethink what you're using for toilet paper? We hope so. I can't, I can't, there's no way to get around it. It's, Every day, 27,000 trees are cut down just to make conventional toilet paper. That's almost 10 million trees per year just to make something that's used once and then flushed down the toilet. That's where real paper comes in. Real makes a sustainable toilet paper that contains no trees and instead uses 100% bamboo. Bamboo is an awesome, sustainable option. It's both soft and strong, and because it's a grass, bamboo can be continually harvested without damaging the plant itself. Plus, while the other conventional papers are wrapped in plastic or in the grocery aisle, real paper's packaging is plastic-free, compostable, and offers free shipping on all orders. Be part of the move towards a healthier environment and join us in realizing that real is what we should have been using all along. You know, we have, we have strong feelings about bamboo in the Vance yeah. household because we have a huge bamboo hedge that runs along our backyard that the chickens like to eat. High in protein, very renewable, um, but I also knit with bamboo yarn and it's incredibly soft and that I think is a perfect combination. Real paper is available in easy hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door with free shipping in 100% recyclable, plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper.com sisters and sign up for a subscription using our code SISTERS at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order and free shipping. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R.com slash SISTERS or enter promo code SISTERS to get 30% off your first order, plus free shipping. 
So let's stop flushing our forests and try Reel's tree-free paper. Reel is paper for the planet. You can also find the link in our show notes. So um, we're so happy to be here in Austin. Why don't we get right into it? Jill, I think you're going to lead us in our first uh, topic. I am. And it's been quite a week for legal woes for Donald Trump. I think you'll all agree. And there's a lot to cover, so I'm going to go right to it and just get into the subjects. So the first question goes to Joyce, who is our appellate lawyer. And this has to do with the 11th Circuit's total devastation of Donald Trump's lawyers' arguments. And so just tell us what happened and how bad it is for Donald Trump. You know, it's bad. And a, a quick moment of history, if you'll indulge me. Before I was the US attorney in Birmingham, I was the appellate chief in my office for a number of years. And so I have um, spent a lot of time arguing cases in front of the 11th Circuit. And it's a circuit with a deep, rich history. It actually split off from the Fifth Circuit. Texas and Alabama were in the same circuit for many years, but the circuit was too big, had too much of a caseload to do. And my understanding has always been that there was a little bit of behind-the-scenes maneuvering among judges who believed that the split would make it possible to issue some um, opinions that were a little bit more civil rights friendly. And some of those um, opinions came out of the 11th Circuit. I don't know if that's true. That's always been the apocrypha. And the cases would seem to bear it out. So, you know, I think it's interesting that we had this appeal from a district judge's opinion, I'm not going to belabor the point, that was clearly deficient in terms of the <laughs> judge's understanding of the facts and the law. Whether it was just genuine inability to grasp what was going on or whether there was some sort of results-oriented um, judicial uh, shenanigans going on, you know, who knows. But the 11th Circuit did, I think, what we would ask of the judiciary. It is worth noting that two of the judges on the three-judge 11th Circuit panel were appointed by the former president, one from Alabama, a very fine judge, very good litigator who was always good to be on the other side from when he was practicing. Um, and, and they did a great job joined by a third judge who is an Obama appointee, Robin Rosenbaum, down in Florida. So from that same courthouse that Judge Cannon um, sits in, which I think maybe there's a little bit of um, discomfort going on in that Miami area courthouse these days. Um, maybe um, Judge Cannon stays down in her own division in her quiet, sleepy courthouse instead of going into the main one. But here's the bottom line. The 11th Circuit essentially said to Judge Cannon, you got it wrong. And you didn't just get it wrong, you abused your discretion when you made this decision. That's not, I mean, that sounds sort of personal and ugly, but it's a formal legalistic standard that says that what she did when she made her decisions on the facts and the law is that she was so wrong, she was so far off base that they couldn't let it stand. Even though they would normally engage in some level of deference to her decisions about the facts, they take their own fresh look at her legal rulings, but her decisions were just so bad that they abused discretion they reversed her resoundingly, and I think in a way that if this case does end up in front of the Supreme Court one way or another, um, the Supreme Court will do the same. So good for the 11th Circuit. And when we look at getting slammed by the courts, the special master did the same thing. And Barb, tell us about what Judge Deary did. 
So Judge Deary, I am have become a quick big fan of Judge Deary. I even like his name. It sounds so fun, Deary. <laughs> I adore you, Judge Deary. <laughs> um, judge Deary, uh, senior status judge in Brooklyn, was the special master appointed by Judge Cannon. And he is not taking any of it. You know, he is very quick to say, I don't see how you have any right to these classified documents, which of course now the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has sort of carved out of his review, which I think is a really important thing for the government to be able to take those documents and assess any damage to the intelligence community that may have occurred while they were roaming around in the basement at Mar-a-Lago um, and allowing the Justice Department to be, utilize them in their criminal investigation, which is really intertwined with the intelligence assessment as well. So that part is great. But in addition, he has put them on a tight schedule. Uh, you know, at their initial hearing, the Trump lawyers said, no, oh, we don't need to go so fast. Three months maybe to do this. And he has put them on a very tight schedule. By next Friday, they need to identify um, categories of documents, including really the, the put up or shut up moment. You may recall that Donald Trump had claimed publicly that the FBI planted documents in his Mar-a-Lago home. Um, the lawyers have never made that statement uh, because you know, in court, if you make a false statement, you can be disbarred, suspended, charged with a crime. So there are consequences for false statements in court. They have never made that statement. So the judge has said, I would like you to go through each and every document and I want you to categorize you know, what you claim to be privilege and I want you to specify which are the documents you say were not there before the FBI came in. And I want a sworn declaration by next Friday. All righty then. So I think it's terrific that he is just following the law. He says he wants to act with, I think his term was reasonable dispatch. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna rush you, but we're not gonna delay either. And so I think eventually we're gonna get through this special master process and back on track to where I think the Justice Department had wanted to be. And frankly, where the Justice Department wanted to be was doing all of this outside the public eye. The only reason we even know about this is because Donald Trump is the one who publicly announced it. I think the Justice Department would have been quite happy to quietly review these documents and be on their way. And now I think Donald Trump's very public statements about this has perhaps put them in a, a situation where they have no choice but to file criminal charges against him. I am so with you on that one. It's almost inevitable it would be a crime if it didn't happen. And as bad as those two things are, as much as they are starting to bend the arc of justice toward justice, there's been another really big development. And Kim, I want you to talk about what happened in New York. The Attorney General brought a civil complaint against the President that does enormous damage to him if these goes to trial and if there is a verdict in favor of the government, which based on what I read, I think is what will happen. So tell us what's in that. Yeah, so New York Attorney General Tish James real, uh, filed a civil lawsuit. And this one, it doesn't have to do with Donald Trump's threat to democracy yeah. in, in, or his threat to national security. But it does hit him where it hurts, potentially. And what it is, it is a civil lawsuit against uh, the Trump organization. Well, there was always already a lawsuit against the Trump organization, but against him and his children for fraud in the way that they ran that organization, essentially. Uh, they valued their properties, overvalued 
devaluated it when they wanted to get a loan, uh, and they undervalued it when the tax man came around. And that equals fraud. Um, and what uh, Attorney General James uh, aptly described as the art of the steel. See what she did there? <laughs> But the interesting thing about this, and it is a civil case, but I like it because it talks about, uh, it, it's a, it demonstrates how civil lawsuits can be used in a really effective way and in the public interest. Because when you are a corporation operating under the laws of New York State and you don't follow the laws of New York State, there are big consequences. And the biggest potential consequence here would be the possibility that neither he, his children, nor the Trump Organization can continue uh, in the real estate realm in New York City. And that is where his bread and butter is and has always been. And I can't think of a thing that would harm him more uh, than if that is the actuality. And there is precedent for this. If you look at the New York Attorney General case against the Trump Foundation, remember that, the so-called charity uh, that the, that Trump set up to be a philanthropic organization, but it never was. He used it for campaign contributions and all kinds of other things. He, he cannot, he and his children cannot even serve on boards of charities in the state of New York now as a result of that lawsuit and that settlement. So it's the, the very same thing can happen in this case. And I, I think the case has been pretty strongly made. This is something that has been in the works. Now, of course, also, the Attorney General forwarded uh, potential evidence of crimes to the U.S. Attorney uh, for New York. We have talked before about not being so sure if anything might come to that. Of course, there were a lot of um, high-profile um, defections from that office over the disagreement as to whether to bring charges against him. But I think this civil case is probably the biggest thing that's going in New York right now. Yeah, and the consequences are far beyond anything I had originally envisioned. I thought, oh, there'll be fines. They're seeking $250 million in compensation for his unfair gain. They're barring him from buying or selling real estate in New York State or borrowing money from any bank, bank that yeah. is chartered in New York, which is every bank. So it's really devastating. But let's talk a little more about this criminal stuff. Joyce, tell us what some of the possible charges that have been referred to IRS and to the Southern District of New York, to the federal court. So unfortunately, I'm going to pump the brakes here a little bit for this reason. You know, I take Tish James um, at her word. She's done a great job with this civil suit. I, I agree with Kim. I think ultimately this may hurt Trump far more than anything else. It's why New York State has a blue sky law to protect New York citizens from predatory practices by companies. Trump has been pretty predatory. Um, the problem with the criminal charges that are being referred to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan and referred back to the DA in, in Manhattan is that it, it's not like this was any sort of a surprise, right? And if the Justice Department wanted to investigate tax charges, much of the predication for an investigation would have been known probably years ago, to be frank about it. I remember this moment when I read the, the statement of offense that accompanied Michael Cohen's plea agreement, which was about this, and I thought, this is a laydown. You know, DOJ is going to prosecute 
all of these folks for all of this wrongdoing and it will be an end of the Trump empire. And that didn't happen. I am not certain that there's anything new in all of this that might light a, you know, light a fire under DOJ. I sure hope that there is. Because if what Tish James is bringing forward is correct, and there's every reason to believe it is, like Jill, I read it, my, my jaw just kept dropping, right? I mean, 200 times that they made false fraudulent statements that are documented. Um, those sorts of tax violations deserve a good hard look by the Justice Department. That's bread and butter sort of criminal casework for us. And so I would hope that those sorts of criminal violations would be um, you know, given a good hard look. The bank fraud side of things honestly can be a little bit more difficult. And I could see how uh, on the criminal side of the house where the burden of proof is much higher than it is on the civil side, it could be tough to bring a bank fraud case because you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt for a prosecution. In the civil case, Tish only has to prove things by the preponderance of the evidence. That standard means it's more, li more likely than not. And so you can get a jury there. But bank fraud, for instance, would require proof that um, Trump executed a scheme or artifice to defraud a bank. And there's this sort of obvious defense. I wasn't trying to defraud the banks. They could have come and taken a square footage measurement on my apartment in Trump Towers. That criminal case might be tough. Ultimately, though, I'm awfully happy about the civil case, and I think it's enough. So, Barb, you and Joyce both testified before Congress, and so I want to turn to January 6th committee because that's been reactivated. There's going to be a hearing on next week, the 28th, and um, they also have reached an agreement with Ginny Thomas. And so I want to talk about, um, not the Ginny Thomas part, but if you would cover just... What are you expecting on the 28th in the public hearing? What do you think is going to happen, and what do you think the consequences will be? Yeah, we don't know yet, but you know, to me, there are two areas, and they've hinted that they might cover these things that they have not quite covered, though they have made some suggestions yet. One is this bit that we heard at the end of one hearings where, where Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren made reference to uh, the big lie was also the big ripoff. And, you know, as, as Joyce was saying, proving a fraud case as a prosecutor's bread and butter, you know, proving this January 6th insurrection is a really unusual case for them to put together. They may get there and they're working on it, but it would be, you know, very, very challenging and, and very unusual. But a fraud case is easy. You, you lie, you say, I'm collecting money for one thing based on a certain premise, and that thing isn't true, or you use the money for something else. And so to say, I, I'm collecting money uh, to because the, the election was stolen and you got to give me money to stop the steal and the election was not stolen, that could be a fraud. Or to simply say, give me the money to use in defense of the election and then you use it for other things as reportedly has been done, that can be a fraud. So it could very well be that they can put that together and I'd love to hear more about that. We got just a little taste of it at the end of one of the prior hearings. The other thing that I think they have not quite linked in my mind is connecting up the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the others who used physical force on the Capitol on January 6th and whatever was swirling around in the Willard Hotel war room with Roger Stone. And, you know, they, they've got hints of, of connections there. We see them, you know, Michael Flynn photographed with some of these guys, Roger Stone photographed with some of these guys. They say they were providing uh, security for them. And we know they were around on January 5th. Mark Meadows 
calls into a meeting on January 5th. Remember, he wanted to go, and Cassidy Hutchinson said, you know, sir, are you sure you want to go to that meeting at the Willard Hotel on January 5th? That might be a bad look. Yeah, you're right, Cass. I'll just call in. So he was on. He did participate. So I just feel like we have not quite connected the dots there. It may be that they don't have the evidence. It may be that the Justice Department, you know, we know that several of these Oath Keepers and Proud Boys have entered into guilty pleas and are cooperating. Maybe that stuff is going on behind the scenes and we don't know it. But that's what I'd really be listening for on, on September 28th is to hear those two topics. Can I add one more in? I'll just flag it because this is my perennial interest. You guys know I've said this before. It's the whole deal on what was going on with the military at the Department of Defense where Trump had put new appointees in place after the election, which has always seemed really odd to me. I hope we'll hear a little bit about that. And Michael the Flynn's brother. Was no there kidding. Too, right? Still and, there, right? And I got to, you know, I hate pushing my own podcast besides this one, but iGen Politics, we interviewed Chris Miller, who was the Secretary of Defense, uh, acting Secretary of Defense at that time. And if you want to see something really appalling, please watch that episode of iGen Politics because Chris Miller should have never been Secretary of Defense. And there's no question that he was like out of control. He almost walked off the podcast when my 18 year old colleague, Victor Shi, asked him a question. He said, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take this from you. So, uh, and that was the Secretary of Defense. Um, anyway, Kim, let's go to you now. And uh, in addition, before or sometime after this 28th, they also have reached a deal to talk to Ginny Thomas, who is the wife of, of course, Justice Thomas, and also a right-wing activist who has tried to undo the election. So talk about what that might be um, what we could expect from that? Well, of course, I think that it is um, very important that investigators talk to her because aside from being the wife of a Supreme Court justice, the very same court that Donald Trump himself said it was important to appoint justices to because he may need them for the election, um, Jenny Thomas was there on January 6th, although she said she went home early because she got cold. <laughs> Um, and as you said, we have learned subsequently that she spent a great deal of time trying to get election results in multiple states overturned. So clearly she is somebody who uh, was in a position uh, during this that uh, to be, how do I say it, to be a subject of interest for the January 6th committee. But what I don't expect is for her to give evidence that is that useful because if she was willing to do that she would have done that already she initially said oh i want to speak to yeah. the committee and clear all this up just let them know that i was cold and i went home but i i don't think that we're going to see the level of cooperation from her that she ought to get i would be surprised if we do, I, I also think that it is really remarkable that uh, her husband is still in a position as some of these challenges make their way to the high court to still hear them. Of course, we've already had a January 6th related challenge reach the high court. And not only did he not recuse, he was the sole dissenter in the case about uh, document production in the January 6th probe. So I think that it is very problematic there. I wonder what, if anything, the Chief Justice will try to do to impose these voluntary ethics rules that the justices are bound. And I think that's one important thing to remember. 
we, we often talk about how the Supreme Court has different rules. They technically don't. They are bound by the same rules as all the other judges in the federal judiciary. The enforcement is different. That's the only difference in that they essentially enforce it. It's self-enforcing. So when he doesn't recuse in cases that there is a potential, even an appearance of a conflict of interest, that does break a rule, but it's just only up to him to enforce it and he's refusing to do so. So I wonder what will happen there. I think that's one of the most important points here is that legislation may be necessary to impose ethics enforcement on the Supreme Court because this is outrageous that he's hearing cases that involve his wife and her interests. You know, I love my, my pear eyewear. With pear eyewear, you can put your own custom uh, frame uh, over the, the, the model frames that you have. And I have Detroit Tigers uh, frame on my pear eyewear so I can represent when I'm watching the games. Kim, are you, uh, are you using pear eyewear? I do love pear eyewear, and I, I really uh, give you props for representing Detroit, which is our shared hometown. I have uh, a really lovely plaid uh, overlay, and I also have sunglasses, which is really cool, because I can wear my glasses, and when I go outside, just pop the sunglasses right on the outside, and it's really, really great and very convenient. And you are a unique mashup of all your favorite things, and there's a multitude of ways to express yourself. So celebrate and explore who you can be with customizable prescription sunglasses from Pear Eyewear. Pear knows your style is constantly evolving. I do like to change outfits, you know. It goes right along with that. She's the stylish one. So it's time for your glasses to start keeping up. With pair eyewear, changing your frames is easier than ever. Just snap on a new design to transform, transform your look whenever the mood strikes. One pair, endless possibilities. Because who says glasses have to be boring? It is an amazing product. I just came back from a safari, and instead of putting in contacts in the morning, I just put on the cover-up, which was the sunglasses, over the regular glasses. It's fabulous. Pear's virtual try-on lets you sample their wide variety of frame shapes right from your computer, and it really works. I'm not the most adept at using that, but it really, really worked. They have incredible lens options from blue light ones to sunglasses, readers, light-responsive lenses, and much, much more. There are hundreds of designs to go with any base pair you choose. So pick your favorites and build a collection to match your personality with pair. I chose a particular shape that I thought was great with a blue tortoise bottom. And then I got this bright red one that was terrific. And then I got two pairs of sunglasses to overlay. Fabulous. We also love that Pear knows vision is essential and gives back to those in need. Beyond helping you craft a style that's yours, Pear wants to do some good. Right now, over 200 million children worldwide who need glasses can't get them. So for every pair you buy, Pear provides glasses to a child in need. With Pear, you can look good and do good. It doesn't get better than that. Get glasses as ever-changing as you are with Pear. Go to PearEyewear.com sisters for 15% off your first purchase. That's 15% off at PairEyewear.com sisters. You can also find the link in our show notes. 
I think it's time to go to topic number two. It is. Speaking of the Supreme Court, the next term begins uh, just next week um, with this new constituted court. Now, it's still a 6-3 court. There will be a new justice on the bench. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson will be joining the other justices. But I just want to get a sense from my sisters. What cases are you looking out for next? There's, this term is a blockbuster. It's really a barn burner, you guys. But if you had to pick one case that you're mostly looking out for, Barb, what would it be? Well, there are a number of very significant cases this term. One that I want to talk about is a case that has been kind of um, previewed for about four years. It's this case involving um, the tension between free speech, religious liberty, and LGBTQ rights. Uh, you may recall the Masterpiece Cake Shop case of a few years ago where the court kind of punted and there was a, uh, a same-sex couple who went to a bakery to have them bake a birthday cake and were turned away because the baker said to, to bake a same-sex birthday cake and put the names of the groom and groom on that cake would violate my religious rights and my free speech rights. You would be forcing me to say something I am opposed to saying. And so the case went up to the Supreme Court, but the court kind of punted on it, essentially saying that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had been too mean to him and had uh, that uh, uh, made fun of his sincerely held religious beliefs and so kind of punted on the case. And so now we have a new case coming up that's kind of similar. This one is called 303 Creative versus Elenis. And in this case, there is a web designer. She designs websites. And one of the topics that she designs is websites for, for weddings that are coming up. You know, you can go on and... RSVP and uh, gift registry and all those kinds of things. And um, she has said she refuses to uh, do websites for same-sex marriages, which violates uh, the law in Colorado, which says if you offer services to the public, you must offer it in a non-discriminatory fashion. And so you are discriminating against same-sex couples if you do this. So um, in the Tenth Circuit, they ruled against her, that is the Court of Appeals there, and said, no, you must um, honor any, anyone who comes to your, your open business and seeks um, use of your, your website. Uh, you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. So the court has taken that up. And so one signal there is if the court has taken it up, if they were just going to sort of say, yeah, we think the Tenth Circuit got it right, maybe they wouldn't take it up. So the fact that they take it up kind of maybe is a hint that they're going to reverse it. But it does answer the question that was left open in the Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is now these, these laws come in tension. You've got free speech rights. You know, you can't force people to say things they don't believe. But as we all know, unless you are a textualist or an originalist, you don't read provisions of the Constitution in a vacuum. You also have to look at other provisions of the Constitution, like the Equal Protection Clause. And so when these two things come into conflict, then the question is, is it narrowly tailored, the government's rule, to achieve a compelling governmental interest? And so here, the rule about protecting the rights of same-sex couples to get the same services as everyone else is, I, you know, I, I think, a, a narrowly tailored um, uh, rule to achieve a compelling governmental interest. But that's a question that's going to come up before this court, and I think it's a very interesting one, um, you know, as we think about 
religious liberty, free speech, and the rights of LGBTQ individuals. You know, would we ever say this about African Americans today or women today? But we certainly did decades ago. It seems like the same arguments that we have to kind of rehash history every time there's another group that comes before us. So I'll be keeping an eye out for that one. Yeah, I'm not sure that we won't again, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and, and it's really interesting. I, I would keep an eye out on cases where religion is either a, a central part of the case, as in this case, or even an underlying part of a case, such as Dobbs. Um, there is a real appetite among some justices on the court who see themselves as some sort of religious crusaders, just by their own words and speeches that they give look at any speech that Samuel Alito has given in the last couple of months. Uh, that is very concerning for me and that they are using this court as a vehicle to try to advance some, um, you know, rail against some attack on religion that they say is happening when it actually isn't. There is not a set. Five years ago, if you asked me what's the most protected constitutional right by this court, I would say the Second Amendment. Now I would say the First Amendment, but only the religious parts of the First Amendment is the most protected uh, right of all. But Jill, what case are you looking at for this term? Well, like Barb, this one was sort of previewed by the Eastman memo. And this goes to the state legislature, independent state legislature theory, although I would, I'd like a better word than even theory because it's so ephemeral and so wrong that I hate to even call it a, a theory. Some people call it a doctrine, definitely not a doctrine. And it's a case out of North Carolina where some legislators filed a suit against the redistricting map that had been drawn based on partisan outcomes. And it was clearly based on partisan outcomes. It solely favored the Republicans. And it was against the state constitution to use partisan gerrymandering. But let me put it in context because the Supreme Court had already said it's okay at the federal level to do partisan gerrymandering. We're not gonna count that. Racial gerrymandering, yeah, we won't allow that, but partisan, yeah, we'll allow it. It's up to the state courts to handle. So now the state courts are handling it, and the Supreme Court's looking at whether they can, because under this silly theory, they say that the Constitution, the federal Constitution says that the time, place, and manner of federal elections are handled by the states. And therefore, even the state Supreme Court cannot review what the state legislature does. It means they can do anything they want and they cannot be reviewed for even violating their own state constitution. This would be, unlike the end of maybe the First Amendment as we know it, this would be the end of democracy as we know it because you wouldn't have votes count in the way we expect them to be counted. You wouldn't have one person, one vote. And so to me, this case is really a crucial case that we have to watch very, very carefully. It's, I think, a scary, scary one. I think it's the most important case on the docket Thank you. this term, 100%. It is really terrifying. Uh, on that joyful note, Joyce. What's, so top that, Joyce. What, Joyce. Go ahead. Yeah. What case are you looking out for? If you're not incredibly depressed after listening <laughs> to Jill. Um, so I'm watching that um, slow motion, unavoidable train wreck in action, which is the Alabama voting rights case. 
um, Merrill versus Milligan. It is um, the final act in the long drawn out death of the Voting Rights Act. And it's much like what Barb said, you know, you can tell a lot from the court's decision to take a case, right? You can tell a lot. The Supreme Court takes cases when they're ready to make new rulings, go a new direction on an issue or has something important to say. Um, and what they're going to say here is the Voting Rights Act is dead. So here's what happens in the case. Alabama gets the new census data and writes a fabulous new map for Alabama's seven congressional districts where, lo and behold, despite increasing numbers of minority folks in population, only one of those seven districts gives black people the option of electing the candidate of their choice. And it is a packed district. Like, I mean, I just have to show you the visual, right? Um, what happens is, it's, thank you, Kim. They, they have this sort of concentration of population. But then to make sure that black people vote in this district and only this district, right, so that they can't elect anybody anybody else, there's one hand that reaches up on the map and grabs downtown Birmingham's black population and another that reaches into Montgomery, Alabama. And, and it's literally like two hands coming off of a body. If you want to know what bad gerrymandering looks like, it's the Alabama district that Terry Sewell, who I think is a fabulous human being, the congresswoman from Selma, Alabama, represents. <laughs> but she is the only black person or Democrat who can be elected in Alabama because of how this map was drawn. It is challenged by a number of different groups. Um, and lo and behold, and, and so these cases are different. It goes to a three-judge panel. It doesn't just go to one district judge. The three-judge panel, the opinion is written by a very recent Trump appointee who's a federal district judge in Birmingham. And she writes a knockout of an opinion saying, this isn't really even a close call. This is the most unconstitutional district drawing we've ever seen. Um, and unfortunately, and you know, we read that opinion and, and it's like she does a great layout of the law. It's, it's very scholarly and very well done. She's sort of the anti-canon. Um, <laughs> but it, it goes as these cases do to the Supreme Court on a shadow docket ruling. And this is, this is right before, you know, we're about to have our, our sort of first go round of primaries leading into this election. And the Supreme Court says, oh, not so fast. We're going to enjoin the district court. We're going to let Alabama use this horribly discriminatory map that's been drawn because it's too close to an election. We have this thing called the Purcell Principle. We shouldn't change things about state elections too close to the election, which is absurd because it means you would never change anything and you would always get one bite at a badly drawn map, right, which is, is just Meshuggah. But... Um, <laughs> So that's the state of play. The Supreme Court has taken that case. They made this shadow docket ruling. Now the full case gets heard on the merits. Um, prediction, it will not be good. Kim has written a really great piece on this, by the way. I'm just going to plunk your piece. Is that yes. okay? Yes. And we'll Thank put you. it in the show notes. Kim has written a piece for the Boston Globe talking about the Chief Justice and how his notion of color blindness is really just a marker for doing away with civil rights. And she talks about another voting rights case, the Shelby County um, case, which also came out of my state, and does a great job, and you should all read it. Thank you so much, Joyce. And, and speaking of race and the 
poor use of colorblindness. A, a case that I am looking out for is the affirmative action case, which is the challenge to the University of North Carolina and Harvard University's affirmative action program. It's a reason why both of those are being challenged. It's an effort to wipe out affirmative action at both public and private universities in the country, wipe it out completely. Now, we've talked a lot about how stare decisis uh, is in peril right now. Um, this isn't just stare decisis. There should be a new doctrine called the I told you already doctrine, <laughs> right? Once an issue has gone up to the Supreme Court once, twice, three times, and they've ruled in a certain way, it should be settled law, right? So we have had uh, foundational cases, a case called Baki. Um, we've had a case called Gruder. Go blue. We've had, we've had a case uh, called Fisher. Right here, hook them horns. All of, <laughs> right, right here, University of Texas. All of which, in all of which, the Supreme Court upheld an affirmative action program, especially when, it, when race was considered as one factor among many in a complex set of factors in giving schools admissions directors the ability to craft the kind of student bodies that they think would be best for their institutions, right? So the only thing that has changed since all of those cases, racism certainly hasn't gone away. Chief Justice says it has. <laughs> right, as I said in my column. He is mistaken, but you know, there, there is not equal opportunity to education yet. None of those things, trust me, I know, I have plenty of, of experience of being the only black student in a classroom, and so do a lot of students today. The only thing that has changed is the makeup of this court. And as I said, the Chief Justice for a long time, we, we talk a lot about how the Chief Justice isn't always on board with the other five conservatives on the court in a lot of ways. In this way he is, he's leading the charge, because in many of his decisions, he believes that considering race at all, in any way, runs afoul of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. As if we live in a society where there is actual equality, and that putting a finger on a scale when it comes to race at all is wrong. When every civil rights statute would fall under that kind of analysis, because you have to consider race in order to address structural racism. But here we are again, again, there would not be a reason to take up this case after we have just decided in 2016 the Fisher case in which these policies are almost identical to that one, other than the fact that they want to rule in this case differently. So, so much for my I told you already theory. So, Kim, it's getting to be fall, cooler weather. You doing much cooking? I have been doing much cooking thanks to HelloFresh. I really, as I've mentioned before, hate going to the grocery store any time of year. But with HelloFresh, it is so easy because all of the ingredients just show up mm. at your door. And there are wonderful recipes using the fall vegetables that I love most. So I can't wait to get started. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. 
So skip trips to the grocery store that is music to my ears and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Well, it's number one in my house because it's no secret that I don't love to cook. My, uh, one of my sons learned our phone number because he would overhear us ordering takeout so often. <laughs> he could recite the phone number in that way. But with HelloFresh, it has been life-changing for me. And it is here to make your hectic weeknights a little easier and a lot more delicious. They're quick and easy meals, including 20-minute meals, low prep, and easy cleanup options. Those are the ones I like. They take the stress out of mealtime with time-saving, no-fuss recipes ready in a snap. And now, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save some money, so we love how HelloFresh is 25% less expensive than takeout and is even cheaper than grocery shopping, too. HelloFresh even works with your schedule. Their plans are flexible, and you can change your meal preferences, update your delivery day, and change your address with just a few taps on the HelloFresh app. Imagine getting fresh quality produce from the farm to your door in less than a week, allowing you to enjoy the delicious flavors of the fall season right from home. You know, Barb, my youngest son, a sophomore in college, is in his first apartment, and he knows how to cook, but he's not gonna go to the grocery store. He is no Barb McQuaid. Um, and so I've been sending them HelloFresh, and so far getting rave reviews. Go to hellofresh.com slash sisters65 and use code SISTERS65 for 65% off plus free shipping. So remember, go to hellofresh.com slash SISTERS65 and use that code SISTERS65 for 65% off plus free shipping. You can also look for the link to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, in our show notes. We all really love it. Well, that leads us to our last topic for the day, which Barb hinted at. You know, last year, I think it was about this time of the year, it was right when students started looking at applications for, for law school, for college, for other graduate schools. And this really lovely woman on Twitter started a thread asking for advice about whether she should go to law school. Um, and a lot of people were telling her, don't do it, it's horrible, you'll hate it, you'll have big student loans. And Barb and I sort of both jumped on and were pretty affirmative about it. And I'm glad that we did because she's now one of my first year law students. And she's absolutely, I mean, is that not cool, right? She's, she listens to the podcast. She's gonna kill me right now because I didn't warn her I was gonna do this. Um, but it, it's, it really has made me think how difficult that decision can be about whether to go to law school or not. I thought it might be fun for us just to talk a little bit, maybe to revisit that, that Twitter thread and talk about what advice we would give people who are thinking about law school. So Barb, what would you say? I, I would say we live in a moment when we need more lawyers who are good lawyers who adhere to the rule of law. I think our institutions are under attack and we need defenders of our institutions and defenders of the rule of law. And the way to do that is to educate oneself, uh, you know, to learn about the Constitution, to learn about how to craft an argument, how to read a statute, and administer the law. And whether you work in the halls of government in Washington or a city hall in a small town or in private practice uh, defending the rights of an immigrant, everybody needs a lawyer who understands the law and will advocate for you under the law. So. I urge people who are thinking about becoming lawyers 
to, to very seriously think about the role. It's a service profession, and people need our service to make sure that the laws apply equally to everyone. So we, we can just stop right there and cut that and put that every place, because I think that, that that's absolutely brilliant. And at bottom, right, I, I'm sure sometimes people go to law school thinking it's a, a secure career, it's lucrative, but really you're right, it's a service industry. I don't know anyone who has served in as many capacities as Jill Weinbanks. <laughs> Who, y'all, we have learned, I mean, you should hear the stories that we hear from Jill. She's had every kind of legal job. She's worked in government, she's worked in business, and she has done some amazing things in her career. Jill, what would your advice be? So well, the first thing I want to say in response to Barb is remember that Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani <laughs> and Jenna Ellis and John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark are all also lawyers. So... We need lawyers who are more like us to defend <laughs> democracy. So everyone in this room should go to law school. But let me put in another plug for law school. I went to law school because my undergraduate degree was journalism. And as the elder statesman of this group, I graduated at a time when we were called girls. And when the jobs I was offered, even though I was honors student in journalism, we're on the woman's page. And we, we also have the daughter of a pioneer journalist in the room. Christy Carpenter is here, Liz Carpenter's daughter. Raise so your hand, Christy. Um, someone who inspired me was her mother, Liz, who I campaigned for the ERA with in 1976. But um, for me, it's been a door to so many careers. I went to law school to get a better job in journalism. I thought, an editor would take me more seriously if I had a law degree. I didn't go ever thinking I would be a lawyer. Lo and behold, I graduated and decided that I liked advocacy and that I was gonna do that. And besides, I had to pay back my student loans and it was more lucrative than, and, and I, but I became a government lawyer at a time when, you know, I earned enough to pay back my student loans as a government lawyer, started as a prosecutor, became a defense lawyer, but then I became general counsel of the army then I went back to private practice. And then eventually I thought, you know, I, I ended up running the American Bar Association. And I thought, I'm really running a business. I want to run a business. And I used my law degree not as a lawyer, but as how to analyze a problem, how to find a solution. And had the best career at Motorola and then at Maytag doing international business deals that I totally loved. Then I ran the career and technical education program at the Chicago Public Schools. And now... I told y'all. <laughs> 50 years later, I'm actually maybe sort of a journalist. Not a journalist the way Kim is, but, I mean, we're on television giving commentary. And that's sort of using my journalism because I learned not to talk like a lawyer, but to talk like a journalist so that people would actually understand me. And that goes back to my first day in journal school where... I wrote something, we had to write something, and I used the word um, conflagration, and it came back to me with a big red mark saying, if you meant fire, say fire. <laughs> and that's good advice, and I try to use that on television to talk so that people will understand and we can break down these complex legal things. So for me, law opens the doors to so many different careers. It teaches you to think in really good ways and to analyze and so I think it's a great experience, and everybody should do it. I think it's funny because I'm, I 
have an undergraduate journalism major too before law school. So that means that in like seven other careers from now, I'll be Joe Wine Banks. <laughs> I'm very excited about that. So, you know, for a long time, I've had a slightly different take on law school. Um, law school was not, it, it isn't easy. And I had a really tough time. And when people would ask me whether they should go to law school, I would say, before you go, know exactly what you want to get out of it. Law school is not a place to go if you've graduated college and don't know what else to do. It's not a place to go to find yourself. It's not a place to go just to hang around and just get this law degree because it's so great. It, it's a very specific tool. Law school is not like medical school or business school that teaches you how to be a doctor or teaches you how to be, do business. Law school doesn't actually teach you how to be a lawyer. <laughs> law school makes you, teaches you how to think like a law student or maybe, if that's what you want to do, a law professor, and that's it. But you need the JD to practice law. So it's very different. And I'm not sure I fully understood. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, but I wasn't sure I was fully understood that or fully prepared for that before I went in and I had a very difficult time. I'm glad I have the law degree. It certainly helped me uh, in my journalism career and it certainly allows me to do things like this. But one of the difficulties I had in law school is that my first year I didn't do terribly well. And somewhere well far into my law studies, I and another, uh, a bunch of other students got a letter from the Dean of Students that basically said, now this was a time I went to Boston University at a time when they were competing with like NYU and GW to be like a top tier, we weren't top tier, but to be an even higher level top tier school in terms of the rankings. And so they sent us letters that said, based on your performance so far, we think that you are in danger of failing the bar exam. So we have some tips for you and what you could do. We also got this letter right before finals. Oh my God as if we weren't stressed out enough. And it said, you know, take core classes like contracts and constitutional law. So we were at the end of our second year in law school at this, we had already taken all those classes. It listed a bunch of things that really weren't helpful. What it seemed to be doing was it was the school's way of flagging, hey, we're afraid of you guys and that you guys aren't gonna represent us out in the world as we try to improve our reputation. So I was devastated by the fact that I got this letter. So once I graduated, and I passed not one, but two bars, Massachusetts and New York, not easy ones, and I wrote a letter back to that dean of students and said, hey, you know what? I am paraphrasing. I got this letter. I have passed two bar exams. And what that letter did to me mentally and emotionally was really awful. And I'm extremely proud of myself for my accomplishments. I am a working lawyer. I've passed the bar in two states. And I really don't think you should ever do that to any of your students. Again, you should provide them with the support and actual help that they need to succeed in the world. And I got a letter back from the dean that said, you are absolutely right, and we will not do that again. And now this year, next week actually, I'm going back to my alma mater, BU Law, because it is the 150th anniversary of the school, and they are commemorating that, commemorating that with a book honoring 150 of their most esteemed graduates. And I'm in the book. So that story is to say, if you are in law school or you decide to go and it's hard and you're struggling and you don't know if you want to stay, there's a light at the end of the tunnel to stick it out. So I love that story for so many reasons. And one of the biggest ones is 
I hate how grades are done in law school. And in most classes, there's a little bit of a movement away from this, but typically your final exam determines your entire grade. Now some people are being more human and giving midterms. Um, but I always tell my students, you know, who don't do as well on, on the exam, that there are a lot of people who get C's in law school who go on to have phenomenal careers. And, and it's because- I got a D in development of legal institutions. <laughs> okay, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Um, whoever gave you that D is now like burning in hell someplace, right? <laughs> but I, I mean, seriously, you know, grades are great. It's not why you go to law school. It's like Kim says, it teaches you a way to think. And it teaches you a critical way to think about legal institutions, which are in need of preservation and in need of strengthening. And something that I really love about law school. So I teach at Alabama. It's a fairly conservative place. I, I'm guessing that our kids are, you know, like a mix of conservative and liberal kids. And that is not an issue in the classroom, not even when I teach democratic institutions, because we're unified by thinking about how government should work, how laws should work to protect people. And with that common basis for understanding, you can get much further um, down the road on being productive. Something that I worry about a lot in modern American society is that wedges are unnecessarily drawn between people, right? You have to hate each other because you're black and you're white, you're gay and you're straight, you're Jewish and you're Christian. So much of this wedge stuff that, you know, we, we see some evidence, right, that it's fomented by Russia on social media for one thing, which tells you all you need to know about it. The way to combat that is through good education. And you get the kind of good education that combats that if you go to law school. And if you go to law school, it's not just you that benefits. It's the people around you and your community. So that if you commit to being that kind of lawyer, I think that's one of the things that if it interests you, and no matter your age, if you're at the point in life where that's a good move for you, I really encourage people to do it. We need more good lawyers um, in our community. Joy, sometimes I'm a little over-caffeinated at bedtime. <laughs> really? Idea? Do tell. Any ideas for how I might calm myself down to get to sleep? I have a fabulous suggestion. Do you remember being tucked into bed with your favorite story and dozing off even before you got to your favorite part? With calm sleep stories, you can pause your racing thoughts, relax your mind, and enjoy the ease of drifting off to dreamland. It works even better than reading legal briefs. Um, and with Calm, you can also jumpstart or continue your meditation practice and find peace of mind today. I listen a couple nights a week to one of their stories. It's called Midnight Laundrette. And I think the idea is it's interesting enough that, you know, you sort of stay there, but it's boring enough that you fall asleep. It puts Sounds me straight racy, out every no? time. <laughs> it's, um, I always think that there's going to be a story, but then I always fall asleep before anything <laughs> happens. <laughs> That's why we're partnering with Calm, the number one mental wellness app. It gives you the tools that improve the way you feel. You can reduce stress and anxiety, and we certainly all have that these days, through guided meditations, improve focus with curated music tracks, rest and recharge with Calm's imaginative sleep stories for children and adults. I was skeptical, but it really does work. 
And one thing I really like about Calm is that it lets you meditate wherever you are and whatever you like to do. I often like to do it when I'm on a walk. And Calm has even has new daily movement sessions designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. And if you go to calm.com slash sisters, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. And new content is added every week. More than 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. Calm is ready to help you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. Calm has helped all of us find and keep our focus when the world gets crazy, and we know you will love it. And for listeners of this show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash sisters. Go to calm.com slash sisters for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash sisters, or look for the link in the show notes. All right, so if you have a question, come on up to the microphone. And remember our rules. Well, as people are, we have, I think are we have time to, for three. As people are moving to the microphone, I just want to say, again, if you don't get your question here, yes. you can come over to the Fallout Comedy Theater at 7th and Lavaca, 6 p.m. tonight, yes. and we will be there to answer more of your questions. All right, so remember the rules. You have to tell us your name and your favorite barbecue place in Austin. <laughs> and, and do it really quickly, because we have, like, yeah. five minutes yeah. for everybody's so, question. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, yeah, hi, my name is Brian. Um, Salt Lake is a good choice, so I would go Thank with you, that. Thank you, Brian. That's fine. Um, and I have a question. I hate to give Ron DeSantis any oxygen, but you're in Texas. We have an active criminal investigation um, and a civil, federal civil suit um, filed by Alianza Americas. Um, and I was just, if you could quick give, people are a little confused about the federal versus state jurisdiction on immigration as well as some of the uh, potential problems you might have with the informed consent and the new word, our enveiglement, is that the right Inveigalment. word? Enveiglement, yeah, you may have a problem there. Um, and just if you could talk about the potential civil and criminal problems you may have in those two actions. Yeah, great, thanks. Joyce, you wanna take so, that one? So sometimes the answer to the question, is this a crime, is, I don't know, we need to go and do some more investigation. I think that's the answer here. My understanding is that these people were asylum seekers, which means that they had legal status once they were released into the community. And that forecloses the sorts of criminal cases that one might bring that involve transportation of aliens. Um, there are a lot of both federal and state statutes. But whether there's, as you would say, inveiglement, some sort of fraud suit, either criminal or civil, I think that's something that has to be investigated. There might be some sorts of legal defenses like sovereign immunity. I'm the governor of Florida, so you can't sue me. Um, and, and this is something that we're gonna have to watch and process and keep an eye on because it's terribly important. What has happened here is heinous. It's an appalling level of human rights violations to use human beings as political tools. So I hope regardless of the outcome in the legal cases that the voters reject anyone who is involved in this sort of stuff. So I, I wanna add to that, because um, one of the things that even my sisters don't know is that I also had an immigration practice. Oh, <laughs> well, there we go. There's a, there's, that's Every what we want to Every episode. <laughs> 
Um, and many of the immigration lawyers are saying it's kidnapping, plain and simple. But the other thing is that the money that was used by Ron DeSantis was for Florida immigrants, people in Florida. These were people he took out of your state and sent to Massachusetts and many other places. Chicago has been the recipient of many busloads of people. So there are some things that we can look at, but Joyce is right, we need to get more facts and more evidence in this. Next week we'll hear about Jill's career as an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, okay, my name is Adriana Leon. I am from the University of Texas El Paso Pre-Law. And I kind of had a question about... I'm sorry, your favorite barbecue, oh, please. It's uh, Franklin's Barbecue. Franklin's oh, Barbecue. Very good, yes. thank you. Yes. Um, so one question I had is that, how do you, any tips you guys have on choosing the best law school for people who are applying to law school? Rural Tide. <laughs> We're all going to say our own alma mater. So I'm for Columbia okay. and... Barb is from um, Michigan, right? Yeah, but I do think that there are, you know, you, it's worthwhile to do some digging because law schools are all very different. For example, if there's a particular field of law that you're particularly interested in, mm -hmm. some law schools are stronger in those things than others and have a focus on those things. You know, some focus on national security, immigration law, criminal law, um, international law. Yeah. So you should think about whether you have a particular interest mm -hmm. and do some research on schools. Um, geographic, geographically, where do you want to be? You know, you, three years of your life. Um, and also the kind of setting that you want. Um, in big cities, uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement going around those schools. Um, where I teach in Ann Arbor, Michigan, there is, it, the community we have is unmatched, I think, because we're not in a big city. And so people tend to stay on campus and faculty tends to live nearby. And so we have a real community there. So I think you want to think about both what you want to do, and also um, the, the three years you're going to spend there and, and what would be the right setting for you. And it's going to be different for all of us. And yeah. also where you want to be afterwards, because mm -hmm. if you want to practice in Texas, you may want to go to a law school in Texas. If you want to practice in New York, you're going to want to go to a different place. So you have to consider what you want, where you want to live, not just for three years. I'm going to make one pragmatic point about affording law school. If you decide you want to be a civil rights lawyer, right, if you want to go to the Legal Defense Fund and, and litigate some of the issues that mm -hmm. we talk about, then you might want to make sure that you go to a law school that has some sort of um, guarantee on tuition payment and accessibility of rather than loans sort of grants for mm -hmm. law school so that you don't come out with debt that forces you to go into private practice to pay it off. That, that might be autobiographical. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... You know, that said, there are a lot of really good law schools out there, both in Texas and outside of Texas. And I think Barb's advice is tremendous to, to really look at what kind of classes they focus on. Good luck. Let us know how you, you do. Thank and you. And BU's a great, they don't send the letter out anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Columbia should have sent me one. <laughs> okay. Franklin's. This is our last question, yeah. by the way. Franklin's, but if you can't get in, Rudy's uh, for their carryout is really is really oh, quite okay. oh, quite good. good. Um, anyway, uh, Jill already mentioned how she campaigned for the ERA back in the 1970s. I just want to ask each of you whether you think the ERA is necessary, and you know, would it have helped on the Dobbs decision, or because that was a privacy case, not. It's yes. I think the answer is yes. I think that it's essential that we pass the ERA now. I thought it back then, 
But I think it's even more clear because of Dobbs that if we had had women as a fully integrated part of the Constitution, um, and, and let me point out, when I went to law school, only 4% of all lawyers were female, 4%. My class had a quota of 5% black, 5% female. We've come a long way, but we aren't part of the Constitution yet. And the fact that the court could do what it did in Dobbs means we need it. So I'm all for it. It's a big cause for me right now. All right, I hate to be Eeyore again, but I would have, I would have said that exact same thing. But seeing how this court is not only eviscerating statutes that I thought were untouchable, like the Voting Rights Act, and even just terribly misinterpreting the equal protection clause of the Constitution, I'm not sure the ERA would have saved us from Dobbs. I'm not sure the ERA would save us from whatever the court thinks it ought to do. So I think that it's, it would be good to have, but I'm not sure that it would be a cure uh, for a lot of the things that we're talking about, unfortunately. Fair enough. But I, I would still like to see language in the US Constitution that says that women enjoy equal rights under the law. And I think an equal rights amendment is necessary for that reason. I agree. With that, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law live from TripFest in Austin, Texas. With me, Barbara Quaid, and my co-hosts, Kimberly Atkins-Store, Joyce Vance, and Jill Winebanks. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, hoodie, and other goodies. And pins, pins, pins. <laughs> and please support this week's sponsors, as you well know, Real Paper, Pear Eyewear, Hello Fresh, and Calm. You can find their links in our show notes, and please support them because they are what makes this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag SistersInLaw. And that was a long day. But, you know, it, it, Jill, it never ceases to amaze me. We learned about a, another job, immigration lawyer. I guess we've now heard all of your jobs, right? No. Well, if you go back before I was a lawyer, I had a job doing, let's see, one of the things I did was work for the CIA. But I didn't know I was working for the CIA. I worked for the Assembly of Captive European Nations. And when I was writing my book, The Watergate Girl, I did research and found out that the funder for the Assembly of Captive European Nations was the CIA. So you were a spy and such a secret agent that even you didn't know about it. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yes, you got it. <laughs>